open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 9. We've been spending time in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and, but this is Mission Month, so I'm going to, uh, I'll be preaching a couple times this month, and then we'll have some missionary guests who will be speaking a couple times, and uh, I want to use my opportunities to challenge you uh, in regard to the work that God's called us to do. I went to my orthopedic surgeon this week for a follow-up on my knee replacement. Uh, My surgeon is a fine young man who uh, believes in Christ. Uh, One of the things about uh, filling out those forms, and it says, uh, what is your job? And you write, pastor. Um, You get to meet some Christians because they'll say, hey, I'm a Christian too. And uh, from the first time that I met him, we've had a, a very enjoyable relationship Uh, I'm on a first-name basis with my orthopedic surgeon. (laughs) So I I had this follow-up and uh, got in there. And I had the first appointment right after lunch. And we're talking and talking. And we talk more about the rest of the world than we do my orthopedic problems. And we're talking about his family and my family and and this and that and so on. And, And after a while, I thought, Man, we've been talking a long time, you know. And pretty soon there was a a knock on the door. <laughs> and one of his assistants puts puts his head in and goes, uh, anything I can help you guys with it here? <laughs> and and the doctor says, No, we're fine, and he closes the door and the doc says, That's the hook. Which means which means that they're coming and telling him, Get on to the next patient, buddy. <laughs> Oh, he also examined my knee. <laughs> it's kind of an afterthought. He squeezed and pushed and twisted and said, you're doing fine. He knows what the signs of health are on a knee that's five months uh, recovered from surgery. I want to talk to you about one of the evidences of health in the Christian life today. And that has to do with your spiritual gut called my sermon today a spiritual gut check let's read about it in matthew chapter 9 starting in verse 35 then jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people but when he saw the multitudes he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. The word for compassion right there is actually the Greek word for your guts, down in this area here. Uh, They had a word for heart and uh, some other parts of the anatomy, but this word down here for, for guts became the word for sympathetic compassion because, as you all know, the Greeks also knew that when you have a deep emotional feeling, sometimes you feel it down here. You know, we'll say I have butterflies, or maybe we get upset in our stomach. And so the word, the actual word in Greek is the word for bowels, but it came to mean a very deep kind of compassion. You know, we have the term a gut reaction. 
And somehow that's what was going on with Jesus. He, he looks at all of these people who did not believe in him. They were not people who had a, a true relationship with God. And he reacted. He had a gut reaction to them. And his gut reaction was compassion. And the reason was because he said they're like sheep who are weary and scattered because they have no shepherd. Sheep are an image that God uses many times in the scripture to indicate helplessness and to indicate the need for somebody to lead. And so I want to ask the question, first of all today, how are the unsaved people of our world helpless? I I, I intend no insult to anybody in the world or anybody who's sitting in this room when I talk about people who don't know Christ being helpless, and I hope you'll understand that as we go on through. But what I'm really after today is to challenge you in how you see people who are unsaved. How are the unsaved people of our world helpless? Well, first and foremost, they're dominated by sin. In the book of Ephesians, we read this, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and mind, and were by nature, were by nature the children of wrath. What does it mean to be, to be by nature the children of wrath? It means that people are born, we are born, I am born with a propensity, with a, with a natural inclination to do sin. The book of Romans tells us why. He says, therefore, just as by one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. This has taken us all the way back to Adam and then coming forward to the time of Paul and going on to our time and telling us that when Adam sinned, sin entered the human race and every single person who is born after Adam is born with a propensity or a desire towards sin. We were by nature the children of wrath. Now that doesn't mean that everybody's as bad as they can be or that that everybody's terribly wicked all of the time. Um, but it means that we come into this world aiming at sin. Adam's sin passed on to every human being except Christ because he, his father was the Holy Spirit, if you will, in his conception. But being born with an inclination to sin doesn't condemn people to hell. What condemns people to hell is when they get old enough to sin, when they get old enough to make a conscious choice to, to really think things through and say, well, I go this way or that way, the choices they make are very often sinful, and they make them because they can't help themselves. Now, I'm not talking about believers in Christ. I'm talking about folks who don't know Christ. Because when we come to know Christ, God says the power of sin is broken, and we don't have to sin. But when people don't know Christ... They sin, and sometimes when they sin, we look at them and think, what in the world is wrong with you? You know, I could write the newspaper from my bedroom 
with the TV and the internet turned off. Because almost every week we read about a politician who's going to jail for some kind of criminal behavior related to using their office illegally. Some kind of influence peddling, some kind of kickbacks. Every week there's a news story about a professional athlete who's gotten out of control in some serious way. The magazine covers in the, in the grocery uh, check stands are always the same. They just have different people. So-and-so's getting a divorce. So-and-so's cheating on somebody else. So-and-so's having a crisis in their marriage. In my neighborhood, it's the same thing. One of the houses in my neighborhood is minus a husband lately. The unsaved are helplessly overrun with sin. Now, I know people put a good spin on this. Well, hey, it's the way things go. It's the best you can do. Uh, And yet, it's not the best you can do. I was in a grocery store in the last few months sometime, and there was a man in a wheelchair. Uh, looked like he'd been there quite, in, you know, the wheelchair wasn't new to him. It, it was something that had been part of his life. And he was struggling to get something off the shelf. And so I said, uh, can I help you reach something? He goes, yeah, I, I want that thing right there. So I got the thing and gave it to him. And, and uh, you know, no big deal. What if I'd said this? Hey, bud, if you can't reach the groceries, get somebody who can do it for you, and you just stay home. You'd go, oh! <laughs> you go, what's wrong with you, Pastor Dave? Aren't you compassionate? That's right, because the man is, what's the word? Helpless. He cannot help himself. That's the problem. Somehow we don't see that in the world around us. We don't see them as helpless. Why do sinners sin? Do you need help with that question? Because they're sinners. And yet we still look at them and go, what in the world is wrong with you? And, and we're, kind of, we're kind of shocked. And sometimes we're disgusted. And sometimes it's revulsive to us. And you know, there, there is a good side to that. If you have gotten to know the Lord so well that you hate sin, it is tough to look with compassion at sinners. But we've got to remember they are helpless. They are helpless before their sin. How are we supposed to react to their sin with compassion? Because we understand that they're dominated by their sin. We should also be compassionate towards sinners because they're blinded by the devil. I I work hard to not blame too many things on the devil because there are some, there seem to be some genres of church in which everything is blamed on the devil to the extent that I don't have any responsibility. And that's dead wrong as a Christian. But when it comes to the unsaved world, we do need to understand that the devil is called the prince of the power of the air. We just read that scripture a minute ago. He's also called the prince of this world. And he's called the God of this age. And if those aren't clear enough, 
this verse really nails it down. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I don't ever want to think about the devil. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm often, a, uh, about halfway through the week, if I'm going to be saying anything about the devil, I kind of think, boy, I wish I really didn't have to do that because he is the prince of the power of the air. The whole world lies in his sway. And I, uh, I don't frankly uh, fancy myself a demon fighter. And we should think real seriously about what this kind of a scripture means to those who do not know the Lord. And when we are looking at them and seeing the, the foolishness or the wickedness that goes on, we need to say, wait a minute, Satan has been blinding them. How does he blind them? In 1 Timothy 4, 1, uh, Paul refers to the doctrines of demons. What are the doctrines of demons in our society? Um, he, he gives these doctrines of demons, and, and there are ideas like, first of all, humanism. Humanism. Humanism is, a, is an idea that's kind of, it was kind of all the rage to talk about humanism, especially in Christian circles, oh, 15, 20 years ago. You know what? That's still a very strong idea in our society. It's just not new anymore. What does humanism look like? It looks something like this passage in Romans. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. That's talking about God. Being understood by the things that are made, even his external power in Godhead so that they're without excuse. You know, I've used uh, that fellow that created the Microsoft software as an example in my sermons a couple of times. I read a new quote by him, and I, 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 did, not, I did not write it down, but I, I read this recently, and he said something to this effect. It does seem like the world is so complex that it could not have come just by chance. That's a huge step for him to make. That's what this scripture verse right here is talking about. And now, more than 2,000 years ago, we can look at the complexities of the human body or of our world, and we understand how complex it is. And the scripture says that the, 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 the nature around us and human life should be telling people there has to be a creator. And it does tell them that. It is clearly understood so that they're without excuse. But even though they came to that knowledge of God, I'm going to paraphrase it that way because I think that's what it means. Even though they came that close to knowing God to seeing there must be a creator, they did not glorify him. They were not thankful to him, but instead they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And instead of glorifying God, they changed that glory into the glory of man. Humanism basically says this, I am the measure of all things. Humanity is the measure of all things. There is no God because I cannot see him. All I can see is us, and I am the measure of all things. That's what God says was going on thousands of years ago, and it's still going on. And our society loves that doctrine. Man is the center of the universe and the measure of all things. 
Evolution is the only form of origin that man can conceive of. That's why they follow it. We look at that and go, how can you be so stupid? Well, let's go back to point one. Why are they so stupid about evolution? Because they're so dominated by sin. And point number two, they're being blinded by Satan. Every man in humanism, every woman is their own boss. They set their own standards. There are no rights or wrongs. That's really appealing. There's no such thing as sin. You just hurt someone's feelings. That's why when you hear people in public apologize, they say this, I'm sorry if I offended you. And you go, well, that's not, you didn't admit that you're wrong. Well, of course they didn't admit they're wrong. They don't think they were wrong. They just think you were offended. That's the whole nature of humanism. Another one of the doctrines of demons is materialism. You know, my life consists in the stuff that I own. He who dies with the most toys or the most fame or the most influence wins. People must praise me for how I look, where I live, or what I drive. My life is secured by the things that I own. My house, my car, my contractually guaranteed job. Why do people fight so hard to get a a work guarantee? Because that's where the security is. There's no trusting God. They believe in the stuff of life. And above all, my quality of life is determined by the quality of my health care. There wouldn't be any Christians falling into that trap, would there? Your quality of life is only determined by God Almighty. The third leg on Satan's stool of wickedness is hedonism. My life consists in the pleasure I enjoy. Now, we get into some, in all of these, really, in the last two for sure, there's some murky ground because it is okay to eat. It is okay to be merry. It is okay to enjoy the days God gives us. The book of Ecclesiastes even talks about that. But sometimes the stuff of pleasure becomes the stuff of sin when it's approached in the wrong way, when it's handled in the wrong way. Marijuana is legal in our fair state now. A whole new source of pleasure. Now, when we think about an unbeliever being blinded by Satan, we need to remember this very important truth. Do you know Do you know what happens when an unbeliever sins? This this is an extra credit and trick question. Do you know what happens when an unbeliever sins? They feel good for a while. And we forget that. Moses, in the Old Testament, was adopted into Pharaoh's family. I don't know if you grasp that. He had the opportunity to come into the ruling family of Pharaoh, but the scripture says he he chose instead to suffer the affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. I think that 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 verse is also referring to the big question, the big point of life, which is Moses could have been a wildly successful, in human terms, guy. He could have had pleasure, 
He could have had material things. He could have been the center of his little universe, and he would have died and went straight to hell. God calls that the passing pleasure of sin because even if you live for a hundred years, which in, in, in that time frame and ours would be considered a long time, eternity is a whole lot longer. But this principle also refers to every day. And the, 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 the lie of Satan that he wants you to believe as a Christian and he gets the unsaved world to believe is sin is pleasurable and it's going to make you feel good and meet the desires of your heart. When you get high, you are high. And it feels good. I have a friend who was talking to me about marijuana a Christian friend who has left that behind, but he said, man, that is one of the most tempting drugs for me because I know exactly how I will feel when I smoke it. When you get high, you're high. Food tastes good. Sex feels good. Earning recognition for your hard work feels good. But if those pleasures are in the way of sin, that pleasure is fleeting. And then what happens? Well, you need some more. That's what really those magazine covers on the grocery counter are about. So-and-so hooked up with so-and-so, and then maybe eventually they even got married. But you know, it's just not as exciting as it used to be. I know, I'll get a new one. And I'll get a new one. And I'll get a new one. I'm not going to get married because that would tie me down. And we look at them and go, what is wrong with you? You know what's wrong? They have been blinded by Satan into thinking that this is how to make life worthwhile. We see the pictures on television of all the beautiful people going here and there and having a wonderful time, and we think, wow, they've got it all together. And then someone like Robin Williams kills himself, and we think, what went wrong? I'm not criticizing Robin Williams, because nothing went wrong with him more than what's gone wrong with the millions of other people. What went wrong was sin does not fulfill life. But Satan has blinded the minds to where they think it will, and so they keep chasing, chasing, chasing. And in my opinion, at least, when they get to a point where they finally realize this doesn't work and there's no other solution, what am I going to do? I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to end my pain. And if we're not careful... When we look at them, we'll look like this. What's wrong with them? Huh, too bad for them. Rather than looking like Jesus, going, man, these people need a shepherd. These people need a shepherd. And so we should be compassionate to unbelievers because they're overcome with sin, they're blinded by Satan, and because they are like we were. They are like we were. You he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's talking to Christians now, and he says, Christian, you were all this way. 
You all walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You all conducted your lives in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. We all were children of wrath. And we have got to remember that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, please. Matthew 18. Starting in verse 21. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, and he goes to tell an illustration of a principle. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. We don't know exactly how much money that is, but we know in general it was a huge fortune. Okay, we can be certain of that. We don't know how big it actually was. We don't know exactly what the talent, what that weight of money was. Verse 25. But as he was not able to pay... His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, sold into slavery, all that he had, and payment be made. I would call that the epitome of not being compassionate, right? You're going to become a slave, and I'm going to get my money, at least some of it. Verse 26, the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, And he released him. And he forgave the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who who owed him a hundred days wages. Let's call it three months wages compared to a fortune. He owed him a hundred days wages and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they went and told the master all that had been done. And his master, after he called him, and said, You wicked servant! I forgave all your debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if from his heart you do not forgive your brother his trespasses. Now, I know this is a principle about forgiveness, but it's also a principle about our relationship to God, how, how God has forgiven us and how we should be forgiving other people. And, and I think it's not a stretch for me to say, it tells me how I should look at other sinners because I was in their place. Here I was indebted to God and I said, oh God, please forgive me. And he said, I forgive you. And yet, do I go out and look at sinners and go, oh, ick, oh, ooh, oh, I don't like that, oh, I hate that. I'm going to stay as far away from that as I can. Or do we look like Jesus and say, oh, man, these people need a shepherd. I got a phone call this week from somebody I don't know. 
friend of a friend gave him my phone number and uh, wanted to know if I'd perform a wedding. And I'd told the friend of a friend the same thing I told the fellow on the phone. And I'll tell you, it's the same thing I tell everybody who says, will you do our wedding? I say, well, I'd love for you and your fiance to come in and sit down and we'll talk about it. I don't like to talk about that stuff on the phone and have a little conversation. See where you're at. Where are you at in your, you know, spiritual life? You know, and uh, um, just talk about things. And that didn't go so well from that point on in the conversation. Uh, you know, honestly, I, God is my witness. I was just as gracious and soft as I could be in saying all of that. And what I got in return was accusation and anger and don't judge me. I thought, man, I ain't judging you. I don't know you. He was angry. He was mad. And you know what my gut reaction was? Remember, I get paid to talk. I get paid to teach people the truth. And I was like, I'm going to tell this guy what's going on here. And I'm studying this passage of Scripture. (laughs) Don't you hate it when the Holy Spirit shows up? So then I'm saying, oh God, is there some way I could appeal to this guy? Is there some way, I mean, I'd love to get him in and get him sitting down in here so we could really talk about this. I know enough about his fiance to know that she has a certain kind of belief in God. I don't know if it's real. I'm just thinking, oh God, how do I be compassionate to this guy who frankly, from what I've just heard and the tone in his voice, I don't like There are all kinds of sinful people in the world, and for some of them, we do feel compassion sort of naturally, if I could use that word, and for others, we don't feel so much. Dare I use the word politics in this sentence? Other philosophies of life, other choices people are making, And when we don't feel compassion, that's when we've got to call on God to help us live out this instruction. On some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Do you get this image? Jude is saying, go over there, get a hold of them, and pull them out of the fire. Our tendency is to sit over here and say, You should get out of that. You're wicked and you're getting what you deserve, but you should stop it. I'm not getting my hands dirty. You know what? Bringing somebody to Christ these days is a dirty thing. And you know what I mean? What I mean is their life is so entangled in sin, it's going to take a long time. And it's going to be hard work. But the dividends are eternal. We should be compassionate because they are like we were. And lastly, we should be compassionate toward unbelievers because they are helpless without a preacher of the gospel. They are helpless without a preacher of the gospel. We've got to come to grip this. Um, Do you remember this incident from the life of Christ? When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, 
This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves some food. You know what's coming, the feeding of the 5,000, right? But do you remember this part? Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And, and, And they went, we ain't got nothing. Do you ever feel like you don't have anything? Do you ever feel like you don't really have the solution to the problems of the world? You think, man, that is so messed up. Nothing we could do. Yeah, there is. (laughs) There is because Jesus said there is. You give them something to eat. This was not about a single miracle. This wasn't just about feeding those people and showing Christ had power over food, if you will, or power over nature. Jesus wanted the disciples to realize that their future ministry was going to be a divine human cooperative. God is not going to reach this world without the work of his children. Wicked people will not become righteous without you. People will not stop aborting their babies without you. People will not stop marrying same-sex partners without you. People will not stop getting high without you. People will not face death with peace and certainty without you. This familiar verse lays the plan out really clear. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And it's not talking about the guy who gets paid to do it. It's talking about all of us. What do we have to do to reach unbelievers? Well, according to Jesus, in the next couple verses, after he says they're like sheep having no shepherd, what did he say to do? He said to the disciples, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. (sighs) The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. I had a professor once who said, don't pray for the unsaved. Pray for the Christians to go and be missionaries. (laughs) The starting point is prayer. That's not the last thing we can do. It's not the least thing we can do. It's the starting point. Catherine Russell is going to Thailand to help a pastor and his wife reach the people in that city Her personal target ministry is to help them as opposed to be a person who's going to stand on the street corner trying to convert the tie. That doesn't mean she can't be involved in leading people to Christ. But I guarantee you this, the Thai people are only going to get saved through prayer. They are only going to get saved through prayer. Even more so, could I just say the Ferndale people are only going to get saved through prayer? Every time you see anything in our bulletin that looks like outreach, you should be praying that God will send out laborers and that God will soften hearts. When you think about Awana, the very least you can do is to start praying for it right now. We have some, we've developed a phrase around here. You know, everybody needs to know the Lord, right? But the phrase goes like this. These kids 
really demonstrate their need for the Lord. See, some people in the world look pretty good, and other people look terrible, and our gut reaction is, man, I don't want those kids in my Iwana club. Those are the very kids that need to be here most. And we need to have compassion toward them, and we need to pray for the workers and for those who need to be saved. Number two, what must we do to reach the unbelievers? Shine. What's that about? (laughs) Do you know that your complaining might keep people from Christ? Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault? in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Apparently, God thought the world 2,000 years ago was crooked and perverse. Maybe the world hasn't changed that much. But what are we supposed to do when we see crooked and perverse? We're supposed to say, God, am I doing everything I can to look like Christ? And apparently, grumbling and complaining about the stuff in your life is a demonstration that you don't trust God, that you don't believe God, but that you think you have more better things coming and that God is failing you. And so the people in the world go, well, I complain just like that, so I guess there's no need me coming to Christ. Ooh, are you telling me I need to get some of that stuff squared away so that God can use me to reach people? My friend, my friend Bill Tate, uh, hospital chaplain in Seattle, and he's led many people to the Lord. And one of them years ago, on his deathbed, and Bill's talking to him about Christ, and this guy says, "I knew a fellow named John Jones, whatever his name was, years ago. Can you give me Christianity like that?" And, and Bill didn't say it to him, but he said, but Bill's thought was, yeah, I can because that guy was a member of my congregation. <laughs> that kind of Christianity stuck in this fellow's head, and when push came to shove, he said, I want that. Do people want that? Do they want what you have? Oh, they're not going to say it, not very often. But are you shining? I did a funeral many years ago. Somebody I'd known distantly, not part of this church. And this person's spouse was not a believer. And when they came in to talk about the funeral, they were still bitter and angry over the affair their spouse had had with a person who was a leader in their evangelical church. I mean, this person was angry with God, with Christianity, with the whole thing, because of the way those people lived. Are you shining, or do you need a little bit of spiffing up? And then the last thing is disciple. This familiar passage of Scripture is misunderstood a little bit. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. 
we tend to focus on the go therefore make disciples and we, and we make this into a missionary passage which is you should go to Thailand, uh, you know, Catherine, and, and you should go to Togo, Ben Sutton, and, and uh, you should have gone to Africa and you should have gone to Brazil and, and, all, and we think of going the far reaches and that's good. But if you translated this quite literally, it would go like this. While you are going, make disciples. Now the difference is this. The emphasis here is not on professional career missionaries. The emphasis is on just people going through their life, you know, going to the grocery store. I've told you before, when I go to the grocery store tomorrow, they'll say, hey, did you have a good weekend? (laughs) You had a great weekend. I preached the word of God about people like you. (laughs) Probably not a good opening line. You know, maybe the grocery check stand isn't the place. Maybe it is. I've made friends with a, with a guy down there and at the Hagen, and I, I'd like to figure out a way I could go to the next step. I don't know, do something with him. While you are going, this is a mentality we have to have. And it's a mentality that says, my job today is to shine and to make disciples when God gives me an opportunity. And that's one, that, those are two of the key ways I'm going to honor him. Yes, I'm going to honor him with my personal righteousness, but the impact of that righteousness needs to be toward people who don't know the Lord. And I need to do that because I see them as shepherdless. Many of you here today probably don't see yourselves as leaders. But spiritually, you are. You're the shepherds that God thinks needs to be out making disciples I hope you'll take a spiritual gut check today and just say God what's my attitude and what's my action toward those who don't know you last week uh, Sue and I had Raul and Steph and the family over to the house for dinner and you're all aware of my terrible sad ongoing saga of my newest grandson who doesn't want anything to do with me and uh, while we were having dinner you know we're just eating away got tablecloth and I feel something on my feet. And I think, I thought my feet were hitting mom's feet because she sits next to me here. And I thought, what in the world, you know? Then pretty soon, they're getting a little higher up on my legs. I thought, oh, that's, that's the baby down there. Yeah, it's Titus down there. I thought, yeah, yeah. So I, I get down under there, get a hold to him, start to bring him up. Nothing doing. <laughs> I don't want you if you're the last man in the world. Now, you would probably say, as I would, give him some time, he'll come around, he's a baby, he can't help himself, be patient and compassionate. Friends, the unsaved can't help themselves. That's why we've got to have compassion and be patient and persevere in our efforts to reach them for the Lord.